And I love that. See, if it weren't for commercial and cultural reasons, Easter would be a bigger holiday, I think, than Christmas. Most of us spend a month or more getting ready for Christmas, right? Thanksgiving, turkey's away, we start getting out the Christmas decorations, and holiday music starts playing at thanks. Uh, well, what? Halloween now? <laughs> yes. And I thought, why can't we do something as individuals and as families to prepare for Easter? This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Happy Easter! Today we thought we'd bring you an interview from 2011 with Dr. Eric Huntsman, and later we'll hear from an interview with Pastor Mike Imperial, who tells the story of how a piece of music about the crucifixion taught him a witness of Jesus. Eric Huntsman is a religion professor at Brigham Young University, coordinator of the university's Ancient Near Eastern Studies program in the Kennedy Center for International Studies. After graduating from BYU with a bachelor's in classical Greek and Latin, he earned a Ph.D. in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania and joined the BYU faculty in 1994. He's currently on assignment as director of BYU's Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies with his wife, Elaine Scott Huntsman. At the time, I spoke with Eric about his book, God So Loved the World, The Final Days of the Savior's Life, just published by Deseret Book for the Easter season. The book introduced the idea of something like Advent for those of us who are looking for a deeper contemplation of Easter, documenting the final week of Jesus' life with scripture, classical and contemporary art, photographs of believers at holy sites in Palestine, and suggestions of hymns and classical music. In many other Christian denominations, the whole Holy Week is celebrated, everything from Palm Sunday on, and there are even names for the days. But most of us growing up in the LDS Church never even hear of those, even though it's celebrating scriptural events that we certainly know about. Right. Well, Steve, to be honest, you know, we're lucky if we get a good Easter sacrament meeting sometimes, right? If it's not Conference Sunday. (laughs) Right. Or a state conference or something. But, you know, I have found that if it weren't for great ward music chairs and choir directors, we'd probably celebrate Easter even less than we do, if you don't mind me giving a shout out to my mom for a moment. I know you're sensitive to this too. You have a musical <laughs> mother. My mother was the perennial ward choir director in every ward and stake that I ever lived in. And she, of course, would kind of coerce the entire family into singing in her choirs. I mean, I was a little boy singing alto and then tenor and then bass. And, and mother had a real sense for the beauty of Easter. And so she very frequently would do the kind of Easter programs that most of us see only at Christmas. You know how ward choir directors will oftentimes kind of maneuver the bishop into having a narration and choir numbers as well as talks about the birth of Jesus. And we did that for Easter, year after year after year. And so I grew up singing the Easter hymns and great Easter music, Messiah. She'd have us do some of the Handel, recitatives and things. And so I had this sense that Easter was an important day. I also grew up in the eastern part of the United States where a lot of my friends were Roman Catholic or Episcopalian. And I didn't know all the details, but I knew about Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday or Good Friday. Mm-hmm. In our school, you know, we never had meat on Fridays. I never knew why until my friends told me later. <laughs> but we actually had years where we had no no school on Good Friday. So, you know, I had the experience in the LDS church with my mother and our ward choir programs, and then I realized there's something else out there. And so I was kind of sensitized to that. Later, I came to BYU and, you know, was in great student wards, but occasionally Easter would kind of come and go. And once again, if the ward music chair hadn't programmed an Easter hymn, you might not even have known it was Easter. Um, <laughs> well, then later I was called as an LDS bishop soon after we'd moved back to Provo when I'd come back to BYU to teach. 
And I suddenly thought, you know, I don't have mom here to take care of this for me. And, you know, it's up to me to kind of do something. So what I did one year besides plan an Easter program, kind of like mother had always done, is I printed in the sacrament bulletin a reading schedule the week before Easter and said, here are the events of the last days of the Savior's life, and maybe read them to kind of get ready for Easter. And that kind of grew over the years. We printed it the next two or three years. I think one year we actually had Easter Sunday fell on a fast Sunday. And so our Palm Sunday program the week before was our chance to do the music and the scripture readings and everything. It was interesting because a lot of the ward did the readings and the testimonies that Easter Sunday really were focused on Christ. Well, later I was released and I just kind of kept studying it. And I began this little email commentary I'd sent out to family and friends. And each day of the week before Easter, I'd send out like this mass email, junk mail kind of thing to my friends saying, here are the readings and here are some thoughts. And I love music. And so I started associating songs and hymns and classical works with those days and started to find pieces of art. Anyway, someone gave it to someone who gave it to someone at Desert Book, and the Desert Book said, wouldn't you like to do a book on this? And I just jumped at the chance because I have such testimony of what the Savior's done for us. And I use a quote in the introduction of this book from President Hinckley. It was his Christmas 2000 message. There would be no Christmas if there had not been Easter. The babe of Bethlehem would have been just another baby if it hadn't been for the redeeming Christ of Golgotha, of Gethsemane and Calvary, and the triumphant fact of the resurrection. And And I love that. See, if it weren't for commercial and cultural reasons, Easter would be a bigger holiday, I think, than Christmas. Most of us spend a month or more getting ready for Christmas, right? Thanksgiving, turkey's away, we start getting out the Christmas decorations, and holiday music starts playing at Thanksgiving, well, what, Halloween now? (laughs) Yes. And I thought, why can't we do something as individuals and families to prepare for Easter? Can't we take at least the week before Easter to read as families, play good music in our homes, to maybe sing important songs that teach us these lessons. It's not just the week of the resurrection. It's those days leading up to and including the atonement. Right, right, absolutely. The scourging and and things that we sometimes just pass over. Well, you know, I had another experience with that. When I I actually came to BYU in 94 and I taught in classical studies, Greek and Latin and Greek and Roman history, my background, and I since have transferred to ancient scripture. One of the things that was instrumental in making that change was I was asked to write a chapter in a collection of essays about the final hours of the Savior. And I was asked to talk about the Roman trial of Jesus because that was my expertise area. And and I worked and worked and worked on that and came up with what I thought was a very scholarly article. And literally the night before it was due, I just felt the spirit kind of weighing on me. It's not right. It's not right. And I had one of those writer's blocks, which you've probably encountered either with writing or music or preparing for a radio show. And so I just flipped open my scriptures and started flipping through the Book of Mormon, just trying to clear my head. And I kept opening to passage after passage where Book of Mormon prophets prophesied about the Savior's passion, about his rejection, his scourging, how he spit upon. You know, and I grew up with the atonements, mostly Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And then we kind of skip through Friday because those are unpleasant events. And we worship a living Christ, not a dead Christ. So we don't do much with the cross. And we just hurry to Easter as quickly as we can get. But I kept reading through the Book of Mormon. I thought, if it was important enough for these Book of Mormon prophets to have this revealed to them, it must be fundamental. It must be part of the atonement. And, and we can talk about And those this. are fulfillments of Isaiah. Well, absolutely. It goes back to a lot of the Old Testament prophecies. And then the Book of Mormon prophets expand that. And, and we can get back to this later. But the atonement is not just Gethsemane. And if, in fact, it's pretty surprising. There are three and a half scriptural passages that really talk about Gethsemane. Luke 22, obviously. And then Restoration Scripture gives us wonderful insights, Messiah 3 and Doctrine and Covenants section 19. And I think you read a lot into the Gethsemane experience in Alma 7. But that's literally it. And as I was writing this chapter on the Roman trial of Jesus and taking this Book of Mormon break, 
I found out there were far more passages about the crucifixion and even about the false judgment and the rejection. I mean, First mm-hmm. Nephi 11 lays that all out for you about what the Savior would go through. And it just dawned on me, the atonement begins at Gethsemane, perhaps reaches its apogee on the cross, but it goes all the way through Easter morning. You know, in the scriptures, the word atonement's used both broadly and narrowly, and we usually use it narrowly to talk about redemption, and, and that's why I think we focus on Gethsemane, that he took uh-huh. upon himself our sins and he suffered for them. I'd add to that he also died for them. But sometimes the atonement is used broadly as everything Jesus has done to make us one with the Father. It's not just overcoming sin, it's also overcoming death, in which case the resurrection is part of it, right? It's redemption from sin, resurrection from death. But Alma 7 teaches us about the healing power of the atonement. And Elder Bednar has talked about, you know, the strength and enabling power of the atonement. I mean, it's so much more. Let's dive into the book for a minute. Oh, I'd love to. You're very, besides the preface, you start off with the chapter with the wonderful title of Rediscovering yeah. Easter. <laughs> Maybe the early saints were trying to think, how is the restoration different or in its fullness other than? Well, you know, it's interesting. And I have a colleague, Bob Millett, who's talked and taught and written a bit about this. You know, a lot of the things that we do kind of come out of the cultural milieu of upstate New York in the 1820s and 30s. And a lot of the early members of the church were Puritans, or they were from New England Protestant backgrounds. A lot of the extreme Protestants, well, a lot of the extreme <laughs> Protestants in earlier periods, they weren't big on celebrating holidays. During the Puritan period in England, I mean, they outlawed Christmas or tried to in Easter. And so celebrating holidays wasn't a big deal, and they were really against images. So a lot of times when we talk about why we don't use some traditional Christian imagery, it may not be just because we have theological and philosophical differences. It may be because early saints simply didn't. So that's one thing, but I think you've also put your finger on it. It's natural for any group to teach to its distinctives. And we have so much to add to the basic truths that Christianity have. You know, it's really important mm-hmm. that we tell the story of the Restoration, that we focus on the prophet Joseph Smith, etc. And so I think there are some reasons why perhaps historically we haven't done some of the things that other churches have done. But what I've done in this book is I keep everything biblical. I mean, I have pictures of other Christians of other faiths celebrating these events kind of spread through it. There are photographs of Holy Land sites and Christians of different denominations and backgrounds, but there are also pieces of art that we can talk about later that illustrate the events. But the text itself is simply based on the scriptures. For instance, recognizing Palm Sunday is not a Catholic or an Episcopalian or a Protestant thing. It is John chapter 12. It is they the waved of, palm branches. Right, right. And so what we've tried to do here to keep this comfortable for an LDS audience is just focus on the scriptures. You've organized it after the initial introductory chapter by days, Palm Sunday, then going through the week. Mm -hmm. And the reason I recommend this book so strongly to people is, one, people of all ages will either thrive on the scholarship and the storytelling or the pictures, the sidebars, and the sort of here's the steps where Jesus walked or here's why we call this particular thing what we call it. Yeah, you, you've discovered my secret modus operandi or my pattern for doing things. You said scholarship and storytelling and pictures and music. <laughs> yeah. You know, this was a really new experience for me because I have a different kind of academic training and sometimes my writing tradition has been a little stilted. And as I was talking with my product director and my publisher, I said, we really want you to find your own voice. This is for an LDS market. And so I read a number of other noted LDS authors to see how they could work in personal experiences. But what I ended up doing in this book is the narrative in each chapter is pretty much an exposition of the scriptural text. But we organized it with what we call sidebars, little boxes. Yeah. So, for instance, there are what I call the blue boxes, which are the blue-boarded boxes, which are either 
my testimony about different events, reflections on the events, sometimes quotations from modern prophets and apostles. There are sometimes brown boxes, which are detailed discussions of things. And then, I think you'll like this, there are the red boxes, which are the music boxes. Yes. Because I have such a great... Conviction, you know, as the sometimes Lord, a hymn text or a classical. Yeah, work as the Lord love. told Emma through Joseph Smith, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. And as I mentioned earlier, I had such great experiences singing with Mom through the years, and then I sang and, BYU and, choirs and, and I sing with you're the in the tabernacle choir. You know, now. and I just thought I know what this does, but I also know what it does for children. We were talking before the interview began about writer's remorse. After you publish something, there are always more things you wish you could do. This year, I have a 14 year old, but I also have an eight year old who also happens to have autism. And so part of this is for him to help him understand the Savior better and these holidays better. And if I could do this over, I'd put some of the great primary songs in there. Mm. In fact, I haven't counted them, Steve, but I think there are more Eastern Easter-related songs in the children's songbook than there are in our hymn book, if you don't count the sacrament hymns. Uh So what we've done is I've tried to introduce a hymn for each day, sometimes on Thursday, Friday, Sunday, two hymns. And then there are some great classic masterworks at the end of the week. So the St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion by Bach, and of course, the Messiah, which was originally written for Lent and Easter. It was not written for Christmas. And then I also highlight a couple LDS works like Cundick's Redeemer and Wilberg's Requiem. You also share that before your kids even were old enough to be literate, you had, like many of us will have, a nativity scene or a pressure. Sometimes <laughs> I think we have five nativity scenes, and each year the kids make a new one out of clay. Uh-huh. We have this museum. But we don't have anything like that for Easter. Well, yes, in the introduction, which you mentioned, is called Rediscovering Easter. And then in the conclusion, which I call Choosing Easter, I have two pictures of our Easter crash. Now, that's not <laughs> technically the right term, because crash is what? French for crib or manger. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's certainly not a cradle. But we found years ago, we, like you, have nativities. And we have a, a beautiful nativity set that we add to every year. So every year, that's one of our Christmas traditions, is to go out to buy a new figure for it. And it's quite a crowd now <laughs> on, on our table for a nativity. But one year, I saw that the same manufacturer made this garden tomb and it had the angel of the resurrection and it had a Jesus. Well, I looked and they also had a Jesus on a a donkey and children waving palm branches. Hmm. And I also saw that they had a Golgotha. Now my wife drew the line at the Golgotha. We don't have the crucifixion that we set up on Good Friday. Although, as we'll talk about in a moment, I do put pictures up of the crucifixion on Good Friday. Hmm. You know, that's not something that's regularly in our home, but I think on that day it's important. So anyway, we bought this. And now on Palm Sunday, we actually have this little figurine. Yeah, there's a photo of it in Yeah, of my kids with it and, and waving palm branches. And we sing all glory, laud, and honor. Well, we read an account of the triumphal entry from one of the four Gospels. And we talk about what it means that Christ is our King. And then we sing all glory, laud, and honor. This year, my wife will be embarrassed that I let this out of the bag. I actually went to a craft store and got some, not actual palm branches, but something that serves as it. And I said, you know, kids, this is what they did. Because next year, we're going to Jerusalem on a BYU assignment. And and that's what they do at Palm Sunday in the Holy Land, is they have a procession coming down the Mount of Olives. Christians of all backgrounds join in on that. But that was something that made me realize the things that we do at Christmas time, which are successful at keeping Christ in Christmas, you can use as models. Which is harder and harder to it do. It is harder and harder, but I think Latter-day Saint families and Christian families everywhere really are trying hard to do that in terms of the music we sing and the decorations. You know, even the traditional decorations like trees and things you can use and talk about how the symbolism can be applied to Christ. I thought, okay, if that works for Christmas, we can do it for Easter. So let's decorate as much as we can, both the fun stuff. I mean, we have eggs and stuff around the house, mm-hmm. bunnies and things, but we have this little Easter crash, and I get pictures of the different events of the Savior's final week. We put 
put up around the living room. And then we're singing these songs and playing music just to help Easter stand on its own a little bit as a teaching opportunity as well as a family worship opportunity. The beautiful thing about Old and New Testament history is that so many of the places we can go to or we can find pictures of, and you have collected everything from maps to things to help understand what valley did he walk down and when did he walk and which gate did he go in. And for me, that is not necessary perhaps to my salvation, and yet it gives me things to hold on to and to hang those feelings on. It's like pegs to hang those important things on for me. Elaine and I started bearing our testimony to each other on the Thursday before Easter as we read the Last Supper and Gethsemane accounts early in our marriage. And then when my daughter, Rachel, who's typical, in fact, precocious, you know, we could teach her these things. But my son, it took some extra work. And it's really important for him, since he suffers the challenges of autism, you know, they don't think abstractly, children with that particular disorder. And to help him conceptualize who Jesus was, these were real events. I wanted to have pictures for him. I wanted to talk about it. And I'll try to control my emotions here, but we had this great experience this last Sunday, because we actually started in family home evening several weeks before to get Mm. Sam prepped for this. And so we were saying, what's Christmas about? And, you know, after we got through toys and things, it's when Jesus was born. (laughs) What's Easter about? You know, well, he, of course, mentioned candy. But he said, well, Jesus came alive again. And then he paused. He said, does that mean Jesus died? How did we miss that? You know? (laughs) But then I realized it's because he doesn't hear about it much at church. Mm. So anyway, in church on Sunday, our ward, like many wards, has a a calendar they print at least once Mm -hmm. a month of the different activities and lessons and things. And so Samuel pulled out the calendar and was drawing on it. And so he drew a palm branch on Palm Sunday. And then on Good Friday, they didn't call it Good Friday, but he wrote Good Friday. And and he wrote a sad face, Jesus died. And then Easter, there were a couple Easter eggs, but a happy face, Jesus is alive again. I thought, this is worth it. He's getting it. He's getting it. Oh, that's wonderful. I think you've done a great job mixing the scholarship because you come from that background of what some would say esoteric (laughs) or some would say really interesting stuff, but how do I connect with the Greek meaning, the Latin meaning? Right. You have connected that here with the feeling and the emotions that, to me, the two have to go together to to change us. Well, you know, Adam McConkie taught long ago, you don't need to know the biblical languages or the history, all these details, to have a testimony of the gospel or to be saved. And I, I support that wholeheartedly. But learning more can certainly enrich your faith, and it can give you insights and deepen your appreciation. And so that's kind of the approach I take. I mean, keep on target with the basic gospel message, the good news that Christ is our king, that he prophesied he's going to return, that he instituted the sacrament, that he took upon himself our sins and sorrows in Gethsemane, that he died for them on the cross, went the spirit world, and then he rose from the tomb. I mean, keep the doctrine pure, focus right on it. But then along the way, add little things about the symbolism. And certainly reinforces the simple testimony we already have, that Jesus is both the son of Mary and the son of God. Well, and the more time we spend thinking about these things or little pieces of the puzzle that we put together, I think it makes a real being to us. But also, then when you sing a sacrament hymn, and then when you read those verses in John or in in Luke— you have more to bring to it, and I think you get more. I, it's almost like the Spirit can testify of more things because you have more things for it to testify to and about. Right, and if you don't mind my just reading from the conclusion, that's pretty much where I come to. Because, you know, in the church, I guess 
theoretically doesn't matter that Easter's not this huge celebration institutionally because we celebrate it every week, right? If you understand what the sacrament's about, we celebrate the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord every single week. But in the conclusion, which I call choosing Easter, if I can just take a moment or two, I say at both Christmas and Easter, we can rejoice in the sublime truth that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son as a gift at his birth, a sacrifice at his death, and as a source of hope at his resurrection. Like many other believers of various Christian communities, we can choose to make Easter a more important part of our year by preparing for it beforehand with a period of reflection and study, using scriptures, music, art, and testimony to bring us to a greater appreciation of all the events connected with Easter. But this is the point that I was thinking of, as you mentioned, singing the hymns, taking the sacrament. If we make this choice, we may better feel the spirit of these important events as we celebrate them, not just annually in our church Easter programs, but also weekly in the heartfelt singing of hymns and the reverent partaking of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You know, this is a seasonal book. It's an Easter book, but the atonement's for every day. And that's the thing about it, I hope, Mm -hmm. is that this kind of study, or whatever you do in studying what the Lord has done for us, particularly in the scriptures, it should enrich and enliven your experience every week. I remember as a kid, we were constantly reminded, and it was a good reminder, during the sacrament to think of Jesus. And that would usually take me, I think, about 10 seconds when I was about nine. Okay, he was born. He... Now I have what I didn't have at age nine, which is experience and gratitude and things I've read. I really can do that if I choose to, because there's now enough in there from just a lifetime of study to really be grateful and really invite that spirit. Well, you know, it's interesting, Steve, as we get older, and I'm still just, you know, kind of middle-aged, um, although that bothers me on a number of levels. Um <laughs> You know, we really do start to appreciate things differently. I remember teaching, it was my 212 class at BYU, which is the second half of the New Testament. We were talking about Paul and grace and the models that Paul uses for salvation. And, you know, there are a lot of wonderfully useful and successful models of the atonement. You know, I think of the story President Hinckley taught that President Monson has repeated many times about he took a licking for me, you know, mm. the boy that took the punishment for his buddy. And then, of course, President Packer's debtor model. And, and we have all these things that help us understand major aspects of the atonement. But there's this image in Paul of the atonement primarily being about reconciliation, that it's bringing estranged parties together again. Because of sin and mortality, we're separated from our Father, and Christ is bringing us back together. In fact, the word that's usually translated as reconciliation in the New Testament, katalage, actually means atonement. And so the atonement for Paul is primarily about reconciliation. Where I'm going with this is, now that I'm a father, yes, my kids have to keep the rules, and yes, there have to be punishments affixed. But my first instinct when my kids do something wrong, particularly Samuel, who doesn't always understand what he's doing wrong, is not to, you've got to be punished. And Samuel, if you can't be punished, Rachel's got to step in there and take it for you. You know, Instead, my image of God has become much more a loving father yeah. who just wants me back. I was thinking about how life experiences inform us. And on page 78 of the book, I have one of these reflection boxes, one of the blue boxes, which I call a man of sorrows. And I actually refer to Isaiah 53 and, of course, the wonderful movements in Handel's Messiah. He was despised and surely he hath borne our griefs and with his stripes we are healed. But I I just want to share something in the final paragraph of that reflection box. Yet even while the Lord can truly empathize with us in our afflictions, there are ways in which our sorrows, heartaches, and sufferings allow us in some measure to be more like our Savior. Paul wrote, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth in Christ. How often we pray to be more like Jesus, but when pain, rejection, loss, and heartache come our way, we recoil and beg for those experiences to be taken away. 
Yet when we learn true patience, the Latin root of which is suffering, for these experiences, our ability to trust in God and understand and empathize with others who similarly suffer grows exponentially. I'm really kind of intrigued and drawn and moved by this. As we have life experiences and they're frequently hard and we suffer pain, are we allowing those to shape us and help them make us more like Jesus? Dr. Eric Huntsman, Eric, thank you so much for oh, Steve, both for years for of work me. and feeling, obviously, put into this, which is going to benefit people for a lot of well, years. Well, Steve, it's just my hope that individuals and families will use their scripture time and study time to just really bear testimony to each other, literally through the scriptures, verbally, and music, to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Eric Huntsman from 2011 discussing different ways we can make our Easter celebrations more profound in our families. Eric's discussion of music reminded me of this 2017 interview with Pastor Mike Imperial, who discussed how his participation in a college choir taught him an important spiritual connection. Really, music had already become a real focus, you know, for my, my enjoyment and participation. But then when I went to Westminster, Westminster does have uh, roots in the Presbyterian Church. It's the first time I had ever sung some of the great hymns of the church, wonderful hymn tune arrangements, and then, of course, some of the great choral literature. And so much of choral literature, Western choral literature, is sacred, sacred texts. When those words and the emotions of the music and the grandeur of, or the simple beauty of doing choral music... God just started to just put that together in my own my own life in my own mind and heart and really I, I became a Christian I became a you know a follower of Jesus Christ really through music through singing those uh, first couple years at the college the real line line in the sand so to speak that came was on freshman choir chapel tour we were doing a hymn tune arrangement of when I survey the wondrous cross hmm. We were singing at uh, First Presbyterian Church in, in Flint, Michigan. And that night when we were singing it, the text just took control of my whole being, if you will. See from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Wow, I mean, it's just that such a powerful statement. Hmm. And then love so amazing, so divine demands my life, my all at the end. And it's, it's like that's... I think that's that was the tipping point, if you will, or that was the step across the, the saying, yes, I, I trust in this gospel, I trust in this Christ, I trust in this God that I've been hearing about and friends have been telling me about and, and seeing. So, yeah, that's when that all kind of came together. When I survey the wondrous cross the Prince of Glory died My richest gain I count but loss When the poor contempt On all my pride See from his head his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er 
such love and sorrow meet Hawthorns come close so rich a crown Oh, the wonderful cross Oh, the wonderful cross Bids me come and die and find that's our time for today. Thanks to Word of Mouth Media for letting us use the original interview with Dr. Huntsman. Our episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a five-star review or comment where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed at InGoodFaithBYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cat Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.